Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave Well I know all these guys and it's birds they like It's Dirty Bird Yeah they're just a couple guys Who really like birds It's Dirty Bird Yeah they're pretty dirty But they really like birds Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, the podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. Big thanks to Ricky Pistone, also known as Dick Piston, for the amazing theme song. Check him out at Ricky Pistone on Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your music. Our outro music is New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out on Instagram, iTunes, and Spotify. Today we have a special episode that I'm calling Bird Bods. Instead of focusing on one species, I sit down with animal researcher, activist, and my cousin, Katherine Kopanke, to explore some of the fascinating adaptations of avian physique. And we attempt to answer the age-old question, how much could a bird bench press? Special thanks to the book Bird Sense by Tim Burkhead, who inspired and guided my research for this episode. Here's the show. You ready? I was born ready. (laughs) Okay. All right. Hello. Let's get going. So I'm very excited today to be sitting down with a very special guest, my cousin, Catherine Kopanke. Hello. Catherine, can you introduce and say a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. I am so excited to be on the Dirty Bird podcast. I am first and foremost uh, a cousin of Johnny. Uh, And secondly, I uh, work in animal welfare policy as a grassroots uh, outreach manager, and I also have my master's in animal welfare ethics and law. Yep, I watched you on the live video screen get (laughs) dunked with a diploma by a Scottish professor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And where where are you from, Catherine? I am from uh, the Southern Maryland. I'm from Southern Maryland. I grew up on the Chesapeake Bay. So... um, I don't know if you're going to ask me my favorite bird or type of bird. But sure, I'm go a big, ahead. Big fan of the night heron. Grew up watching all of the heron activities along the the shoreline of the bay, and it's still one of my favorite uh, birds to watch. Awesome. Yeah. Tell us the most interesting animal job that you've had. Ooh. Because <laughs> you've had a lot. This is a very uh, interesting question. I have had a lot. Um, let's see. I've worked with a lot of dogs and cats. But I have also volunteered in Costa Rica um, at a wildlife sanctuary where I was in charge of taking care of the tapir exhibit. Oh, cool. Caring for the animals uh, in that enclosure. They were very happy. They were very curious. And the tapir is just a really interesting animal. Have you ever seen one? Yeah, it's basically like a pig and an elephant laid down and made a baby together. Kind of. And there's like an anteater that somehow took part in that. that (laughs) It was a three-way. This is getting to be the Dirty Bird podcast. I see now why. But yeah, Lots of trunks involved. <laughs> that may be my most uh, exciting animal experience, yes. That's Not awesome. that nice, but that, yeah. <laughs> um, that's cool. Um, did you ever work with birds at all when you were volunteer? when, I don't know, you were doing your lab research or volunteering with vets, anything like that? Not much. I did work with an avian vet very briefly, and I was able to work on just two, you know, I think pretty routine like parrot visits with him um, and I always wanted to learn more but no now I, I think I'm diving into the bird world more than I'm than I used to. So. I'm rubbing off on you. Yeah he really is. <laughs> what tell me about this parrot what is a routine parrot visit what happens during that? I it was well I can't call it routine actually it was an injury but it was just a wing injury so it was is more just like sedation and x-rays this poor okay. guy wasn't awake for a lot of the visit you know. Gotcha. Um, but but yes, I it definitely opened my mind to, to the veterinary care of avians because I think you have to be very specialized and yeah um, and really just know how to handle these delicate creatures yeah so maybe more bird experiences to come. Do you know how the injury happened? I don't know, but I do think when you keep you know an animal like a parrot in a cage, I, yeah. I imagine if, if there's a time where the parrot is spooked or like tries to escape. This probably happens pretty often in houses. 
Yeah. I mean, we didn't, yeah, we didn't really grow up around a lot of birds. I think our uncle did have a parakeet for a little while, but yeah. he just always was out of his cage flying around. So <laughs> I... Pooping everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, wow. That's, that's super cool. Um, yeah. Catherine is probably playing down a lot of her animal experience. She has done some amazing stuff from sleeping on beaches to protect sea turtles in Costa Rica. <laughs> All kinds of animal activism. She, yeah, she does a lot of stuff. So today, uh, I really wanted to sit down with Catherine because of her great knowledge of animals and animal biology and kind of combine it with my human anatomy (laughs) and amateur bird studying to talk a little bit about the amazing bird bodies and some cool facts about just bird bodies in general. Now, this definitely won't be a comprehensive bird physiology and biology podcast. I could do whole, an entire hour-long episode. Yeah, we were talking, what, just about muscles alone. We could probably do an entire episode. So, And maybe we will. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's something that'll come up in the future. But I was thinking maybe with uh, this podcast here, we can just touch upon some cool, surprising things and do like a big overview of the awesome adaptations about birds. I kind of wanted to preface it saying I don't really want to talk about flight too much. I mean, obviously, we can't talk about a bird body without talking about flight. But I feel like flight, the evolution of flight and everything like that is such a huge topic that I kind of want to more talk about specific other parts of the bird and kind of how they differ from mammals and and humans especially. Uh, And how they're similar too. Yeah, and how they're similar too, most definitely. So where do you want to start, Kat? What, what kind of, what do you think's a cool... Let's go beak back. Let's, let's start go with that. <laughs> let's start with those, those eyes and that beak if you want to talk about let's that. Let's start with that beak, yes. One of the cool things I want to talk about with, with the bird beak, I mean, it's basically like the beak is like their hands. So I can't talk about the beak without also talking about their neck because their necks have a lot of highly developed muscles uh, to really control the kind of fine articular skills. I mean, they can open seeds with it. They use it to feed their young, to preen, all kinds of stuff. So they have highly developed neck musculature in order to control their beak because it's basically like a hand to them. Um, Also, their beak, for a long time, people thought uh, that birds can't smell and that birds can't taste. And that's actually super untrue. Um, Birds can smell and they can taste. It does differ species to species. But some birds uh, have highly developed senses of taste, especially if you're a bird like uh, an oil bird, which feeds on fruit. It's really important that you can tell whether that fruit is ripe or not. So obviously you have to be able to smell the fruit. Also, oil birds um, are nocturnal. They uh, hunt at night. And so they have to be able to kind of smell out that fruit. Um, other birds that uh, eat um, fruit uh, obviously have to be able to taste whether it's good or not. Um, and hummingbirds are able to taste the sugar content in the water that they that they drink. Right. I think I firsthand have seen a, a hummingbird just absolutely be unimpressed with the, the sugar water we were offering. So. Yeah, it's like, yeah, your na- not, your neighbors uh, next door they got some better. They got high C. Like they they get to <laughs> they see got the fruit punch. Okay, you, you <laughs> step up your game. Maybe they like a little wine in there or something. <laughs> um, yeah, except they don't really have taste buds on their tongue the way we do. Uh, most of the taste buds that we find on birds seem to be more on the beak. They definitely have fewer than mammals do, but they can still taste. And uh, an interesting thing that I learned is that uh, wading birds, such as sandpipers, they can actually taste worms in the mud. Even like through the mud, they can kind of taste the worms to know that they're down there That's to really peck them out. Which is really cool. I don't know yeah. what worms taste like, but I guess they taste good to a sandbird. Yeah. Sandpiper. Sandbird. <laughs> <laughs> the bird of the sands. Interestingly, also, birds use taste, not just their taste, but they also use the way that they taste to their advantage. There's a bird called um, a patui, but they create like a bad smell um, on their feathers. And so the natives kind of always down there always kind of knew them as like the, the smelly bird. The dirty and bird. yeah, and what they secrete, <laughs> the dirty, the, the original. original dirty bird. <laughs> and what they secrete on their feathers is actually a poisonous material that keeps them from getting eaten by predators. Wow. And I said how this was uh, recognized by 
uh, natives, uh, we actually have found writings by the Aztecs where they write about how the red warbler is inedible due to its toxicity. Hmm. So, yeah, birds will also, just the same way poison dart frogs will do that, birds have also adapted to do that. So, uh, as far as bird smell goes, I think a really cool example of this is our birds that feed on uh, carrion, on uh, dead animals. A really good example of this is the turkey vulture. Um, almost anyone has seen a turkey vulture circling high up in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was kind of a debate for a while about whether turkey vultures use smell or sight preferentially. Yeah. Wait, they... should we take a guess? Because I don't know the answer. Okay. Well, Can I guess? Yeah. I'm going to go with smell. Okay. Well, it's kind of a trick question because yeah. they use both. <laughs> Basically, they kind of use smell to locate the animal. So what they do is uh, they have these large olfactory bulbs, which they use to smell ethyl mercaptan, which is uh, also called ethyl. Um, It kind of smells like bad breath or fart, um, decaying matter in general. You'll know this smell if you've ever like turned on a gas stove or had a leak in a propane tank or something, because it's added to gas so that you know that there's a leak there. There's actually a saying in the, or not saying, but a phenomenon in the uh, gas pipeline industry, where if there's a leak in one of their pipes, there will be just tons and tons of turkey Turkey vultures vultures. circling the leaking pipe because it smells like a decaying animal to them. But they'll be circling the pipe. They won't be landing on the pipe. And that's because they use the smell to locate where a decaying animal is. And then they fly around, fly around, and they look for where it is. And then once they see it, then they'll come down and land. Such a good indicator for their work. Like they'll know there's a gas leak. Yeah. Yeah, it's really yeah end. yeah. It's it's really cool that they can use that. Uh, God, what do you call them? Uh, birds that are out on the water. Oh, like a pelagic birds or, or is that what you call them? Pelagic. Those would be like ocean fairings. Like a pelican is like a pelagic. Bird. Okay, yeah, pelagic birds. Uh, yeah, I didn't even know that word. That's see, that's why I have you on here. <laughs> so pelagic birds. I'm going to edit everything out so it sounds like I knew what pelagic meant. So pelagic birds, which if you don't know what that means. Ocean faring <laughs> creatures. Petrels, albatrosses, shearwaters. They uh, are able, are very sensitive to the smell of whale offal, which is like, I guess, whale fat or something like that. So they can locate um, whales over long distances, decaying dead whales uh, to be able to eat um, off of them. Hmm. And they kind of have like a tube-shaped nose to really help with that. I also saw, I think it's shearwaters are able to smell krill from like, or maybe it's albatrosses. One of those pelagic, is that right, birds (laughs) is able to smell krill from like super far off. Incredible. Yeah. All those other smells that are trying to get in their way and they can lock in on a krill. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. Uh, have you ever heard of a honey guide? No. So honey guides are these birds in Africa. They're called honey guides because uh, I'll have to do a podcast just about the honey guides. It's not totally known if they evolve this behavior with humans or something, but basically they're known for they'll find a human and kind of be like doing this call, this specific call. And the uh, they're in Eastern Africa, I believe. And they'll do the specific call and lead humans to beehives and then the human will knock down the beehive and that the honey guide is able to get a little bit of that share that is really really awesome yeah and uh they're able to smell wax is how they find the uh beehive and they're actually known to also eat candles too because they'll (laughs) smell the wax wow uh one last little uh fact about uh bird smell here is flamingos are thought to maybe smell rain because it's it's incredible in Africa they will arrive at uh these drought ridden areas right before yes. a big rainstorm They're arrives like first to the party yeah and then exactly. all the other animals fill in for this experience but yeah and we're not sure whether they smell the rain whether they see the clouds whether they hear the thunder or sense the pressure changes uh, we're not really sure exactly what it is, but yeah, they're able they're able to find it that way. It's really cool. That's fascinating. Yeah, let's see. So that's kind of bird taste and smell as far as senses go. Move to the eyes. Um, let's move to the eyes. Yeah, so bird eyes. Obviously, birds are incredibly good with their um, sense of of sight. 
some birds such as eagles, falcons, shrikes, these predatory birds, but also birds like hummingbirds, kingfishers, swallows have two fovea in their eyes. So the fovea is the area in your eye that has the highest concentration of cones and has the best visibility. And so they actually have two of them, which is kind of crazy. One of them's a shallow fovea and one of them's a deep fovea. And they're able to use them uh, to uh, better see uh, different um, different areas. So if, they have double the amount of cones. Is that uh, what you're saying? So actually, they have a million cones, and us as humans have two hundred. Oh, sorry, I don't know how many cones they have. They have a million photoreceptors, and okay. we have two hundred thousand photoreceptors. Incredible. Um, I would think that they probably. I'm not sure about cones versus rods uh, in them. I mean, just in general, in humans, we have m- way more rods than cones. So I'd assume birds do also, but I don't know the exact ratio. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a story about uh, shrikes uh, back in the medieval times when people were uh, falconers and trying to catch falcons. Uh, they would keep shrikes in little cages. You know, do you know what a shrike is? I've seen them. Yeah. Yeah, they're like a tiny they're like a small bird, but uh they're predatory and they're the ones they're called like butcher birds. They'll like impale their prey yeah, on thorns aggressive. and <laughs> barbed wire. But they have such a good sense of sight. They they get preyed upon by larger predatory birds such as falcons and, and hawks. Mm-hmm. So they have such a good sense of sight that they'll start freaking out because they can see the the falcon or the hawk from way far off, and then the person will know, oh, awesome, like there's one coming. Yeah. Um, and so they can get ready to catch it. Also, bird eyes just in general are big. Uh, bird eyes are about two times the size of mammal eyes. Yeah. Uh, they have a higher number of uh, neurons in their optic nerves. They I talked about how some of them have two foveas. Um, their foveas are often indented to kind of increase the surface area on it. Yeah. And uh, uh, some birds can also detect polarized light to be able to, and that's also a way we think that they can navigate is by seeing polarized light. Seabirds have a linear fovea, um, and this is thought because since they spend so much time looking at the horizon, Keep your eye on the horizon. yeah, so that they're able to really well differentiate when there's like land coming up off of the horizon or something like that. They also have a unique structure called a pectin which is in the posterior chamber of their eye, and it provides oxygen and nutrients. Uh, Can we talk about the bird that I think most people consider to have the biggest, you know, orbit? Yeah. The biggest eye socket, oh. the owl. Yes, right? of course. I mean, their, their ratio, right, of like skull to eye socket is just, I mean, I think they they have, well, what many believe to be the best night vision. But do we know, like, compared to their day vision, is it... Is it much better? Is it about the same? Great leading question there, Catherine. So, I just always wondered. <laughs> so yeah, that was a common misconception that owls can see great at night but can't see during the day. They can see great at night, but they also can see great during the day. There's been experiments done where they put owls in like labs during day versus night and have them complete different tasks, and they do almost exactly the same. So... Uh, Actually, the biggest advantage in owls, I would argue, is not actually their eyes, but actually their ears. They really use their ears to locate prey way, like kind of, they they hear the prey and then, you know, they, and that's kind of how they locate it. And their, their eyes are kind of second, because I mean, if it's pitch dark, they're not going to be able to see no right. matter what. Yeah. But yeah, I'll talk about their uh, ears a little bit. Um, I want to just throw in one little more cool little eye fact birds have four cone types they have red green blue and uv light and uh humans we just have red green blue unless you're uh, colorblind and (laughs) sorry for all of you colorblind listeners out there i wonder if there's colorblind birds i mean there's only one way to find out (laughs) (laughs) and also some birds have a oil droplet within their cones too which produces even more colors which we don't even really know about Anything else about eyes you can think of there, Kat? No, I just think like for another podcast, we should talk about how this ability to see so many amazing colors so vividly is, you know, with with all this beautiful plumage and all these different feather colors, like that's just a whole conversation in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Different birds and how they display and we'll talk about that down the road. But 
This have, just got me thinking about that and how interesting just to see through through the eyes of a bird how it would be. Have you ever seen those pictures where it's like how a crow see, might see another crow? Yeah. And they're like rainbow colors, like it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I know we're missing out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, blue jays are thought to kind of be like that too because they kind of have that shimmer in their mm-hmm. in their feathers, you know. So yeah, it's not set. Yeah, I mean, we, we see them and we kind of think it's like just an ugly looking black bird or a dull bird or something, but probably it's actually a whole rainbow of colors. And then like the cardinal that we think is super pretty is probably actually like the ugly bird of the the world so boring yeah like oh you're just one color wow like look (laughs) at me reminds me of war of the rings the saruman of the many colors (laughs) books only uh the rings was gonna come up yes it has to it has to (laughs) what do your allies see um (laughs) So birds also will have like a dominant eye the way that we'll have a dominant hand. And sometimes they'll kind of switch off uh, eyes preferentially on tasks. Like they'll use one eye to look at a nut while they're cracking it versus they'll use a different eye for looking in the distance to observe for predators. So they'll kind of specialize eye to eye. Like one will be better for near sight and then the other one will be better for far sight. That just reminded me of something that I think is incredible. So where I live, I live on a boat, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay. So around June, we have these just swarms of, you know, groups of barn swallows coming through to build their nests under the docks. And I watch them, you know, they aerial feed, right? They're like looking for insects in the air. And because we're in a marina, there are just tons of things to dodge in the air. You have like hundreds of sailboat masts and halyard lines and just watching them like dodge these masts and lines and all of these things that could injure them. Why they, while they like with precision, you know, hunt for these tiny little insects is incredible. So it really makes sense that they have to be doing at least eight things at once. (laughs) Two of those things with catching and looking out. Yeah. And they're so fast. Yep. It's, it's so cool, but yeah, and we think that actually they're just like so specialized in what they what they can see. You know, they're not seeing like the whole picture uh, the way we do, but we would be so crappy at diving under those lines and finding little tiny insects because, I mean, we're great at viewing a landscape and seeing, you know, kind of putting the picture together and seeing all that. They're just probably just seeing kind of lines and bars and then like seeing the individual movement of the 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 bugs that they want to eat so it's just very different the way that they perceive the world and like super cool to think about it really is could watch them for hours yeah no i I love barn swallows they're so cool yeah but i know i i feel you uh living on the chesapeake bay on dock they're more like dock swallows than barns (laughs) like no one really has barns on the on the chesapeake bay but everyone has a dock and so yeah little mud nests under the dock yeah they're like on vacation I always feel so bad when, like, there's a bad storm or something, and, like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh, (laughs) Oh, man. Anything else about eyes or vision or anything? No, I think that was a good overview. Okay. Well, since I kind of talked about owl ears, I guess I'll start off with that point. Have you ever seen an owl skull? Yes. Okay, I knew knew you would, yeah. (laughs) No, no, there really was quite surprising to me, yeah. Yeah, so they have these asymmetric skulls. One of their ears is lower than the other one. And they form these asymmetric skulls so that they can uh, hear when sound waves come to them. It hits each ear differently and so that they can better localize where it's coming from. I was kind of talking about how really they use their ears more than their eyes when they're hunting. Because they can't really trust their eyes when they're out there in the dark. So they hear something, a little mouse skirting around. There's a, And um, actually the experiment that kind of proved this was... Uh, they took mice and they uh, tied leaves to the um, tails of the mice. And the owls consistently would strike at the leaf wow. instead of the body of the mouse because they could hear the, the leaf. The sound, yeah. Yep. And uh, also, owls really can't see too super well. I mean, we think, you know, they, they can definitely see better than we do in the dark, but they can't see too super well. They really rely on memorizing their environment during the day. Hmm. If you place an owl in, in a totally new environment, it won't hunt. It won't, it'll be really reticent to fly around hmm. because it can't really see its environment. It doesn't really know what's going so on. So it spends all day like doing its homework, taking notes, like learning <laughs> its area. I mean, that's really... Yeah, Al from Winnie the Pooh was probably pretty spot on, you know? Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. He really knew his face. <laughs> they put in the time so that they can get that mouse. That's why they're so wise. 
<laughs> also, you see owls with uh, those kind of ear flaps, like great horned owls and stuff like that. Yeah. But those are just like feather tufts. They're not right. actually. And uh, also, if you look at the, especially barn owls are really demonstrative of this. You know how they have that kind of circular appearance mm-hmm. around their eyes and around those, it's all direct, their feathers on their face are directed to be able to uh, direct sound waves towards their ears. Yeah, yeah. Which is super cool. It's fascinating how they, yeah, how they've evolved that way. As far as um, birds in general, like when you're out uh, walking around in the woods and you hear a bird call, like they're super loud and you wonder how the bird doesn't blow out its own like eardrums, you know, or make itself deaf with how, how freaking loud it calls. Yeah. So actually they, their body is kind of designed so that when they uh, open their uh, beak to do a call, they have an external skin flap that'll kind of fold down and block their own outer ear mm-hmm. so they don't hurt their own uh, ears. Yeah. The um, longest calls of birds, uh, the Eastern Bittern, or European Bittern, and the Kapap, Kakap, sorry, I can't pronounce anything, <laughs> have some of the longest calls, which range from two to three miles. And the way that they're able to accomplish calls that go for this long is they kind of <laughs> use their esophagus to basically burp out a song, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is really cool. And birds also have a single middle ear bone. I don't know what the advantage of that is. Like humans, we have the uh, stapes, incus, and what's the last one? Yeah, I don't know. I, I can only visualize the anvil like picture yeah. example, but I don't know. I'm going to get kicked out of medical school. <laughs> but, yeah. This is your future doctor. <laughs> uh, they also have a straight cochlea, and uh, their cochlea length will vary in different species based upon what type of frequency of call they usually hear. Smaller birds tend to do calls that are at higher frequencies. They also hear at higher frequencies, mm-hmm. where large birds tend to communicate in a lower frequency. And small birds will also up the frequency of their calls when they know a predator is around because we think that larger predator birds like falcons, hawks may not be able to hear those high frequencies. Mm-hmm. We should think about the earbone question for a second. I feel like I'm just trying to think of one versus three or like one verse. I mean, why not more? Do you think, right? Because the more earbones, obviously, the yeah. more like vibration, the more sound is going to... Yeah, because the whole point of us having three is that each bone will conduct and make it louder. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if just already they're calling loud enough and hearing calls that are loud enough. Or so also birds will only hear within a certain like a certain range. Yeah. Like so like um, and this will change during the year too. Like during the winter, birds will only hear in a very limited range. Mm -hmm. And then as it gets closer to breeding season, when they're going to experience more different types of calls uh, when they're trying to defend their territory or attract a mate, their uh, ears will actually, I think it's more their brains will actually change to uh, develop more areas to hear a wider variety, wider frequency of sounds. Yeah. So we're really bad at hearing frequencies of sounds. I think like we really are missing just an entire level of sound. And so I wonder if that allows them to make that adaptation like when needed. I mean, do you think like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. That'd be a cool... That's something we should look into. Yeah. And follow up on, because that's that's a big difference. That'll be Just when the... you think an ear's an ear, <laughs> we go and tell you this. <laughs> Rock your world. <laughs> I hear you. That's all I got on ears. I do want to talk just in general about their bodies. So, I have some stuff here. I have... <laughs> Digestion, heart, lungs, temperature regulation. What do you want first? Well, I, digestion. Digestion. Let's talk about some avian digestion. Okay. So you've heard of a gizzard, right? Yeah. Uh, do you know what a gizzard is? A gizzard. So I've always. This is coming from someone who has studied animals and is forgetting. A gizzard <laughs> and a crop both aid in digestion. Yes. But yep. how? What is their difference? Remind me of the difference between a gizzard and a crop. Okay. Basically, so birds have an esophagus similar to ours, right? Mm -hmm. So the crop is a pouch in the esophagus where they can store food. 
sometimes it also soften food too for them and in some species such as pigeons they can produce milk in the crop <laughs> which knew? they then use to feed to their young that is really cool come on you have to admit that's really cool it's also really gross it's gross, too. It's gross but <laughs> do you think you can make enough? cheese out of pigeon crop pigeon, milk pigeon crop cheese zero marketing <laughs> I don't think we've sold it. No, no, there is such a market. You could organic, natural it's pigeon. It's very crop. natural. It's the most natural form of cheese. Don't want to know what that tastes like. No, I didn't know that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, um, and then as far as so we go from esophagus to the stomach. So the stomach is composed of two parts: the uh, proventriculus and the gizzard. The proventriculus is kind of the first part. It's rod-shaped, and that's what secretes their stomach acid, the hydrochloric acid, and also pepsinogen. Mm -hmm. Pepsinogen gets cleaved by the hydrochloric acid into pepsin, and then pepsin is what breaks down a lot of proteins. Then the gizzard has kind of four muscular bands around it, and that's what's used to crush the food. Okay. And you'll hear about, uh, have you ever heard about like dinosaur or... Um, Animals that eat rocks and stuff like yeah. that. Like, chickens. Yeah, yeah, chickens will, will eat. The living dinosaurs. Yeah, the, the gastroliths. Yeah, the rocks that they'll eat to, they keep them in their gizzard and it helps them crush up food in there. Turkeys and quails also, also do that too. So from there, um, bulky uh, portions of food like bones, seeds, um, husks will get uh, regurgitated like owls with their owl pellets. Mm -hmm. um, and then the smaller parts will go into the intestine. And uh, the intestines are fascinating, too, depending on the species. Obviously, birds like geese or something that eat a lot of, like, plant matter will kind of do more of a fermenting process, and they're almost similar to, like, cows will do. Yeah. And uh, then uh, birds um, excrete via the cloaca, and the cloaca is like a all-in-one hole. You can poop out of it, you can pee out of it, and you can have sex out need. of it. <laughs> Dirty bird. <laughs> Dirty bird holes. <laughs> uh, so, how do how do birds drink, Catherine? How do you, how have you always seen birds drink? Like this. <laughs> For they, our listeners, she's tipping her head up in the air. <laughs> um, when they drink, they kind of do a little like beak dip. Yep. And then they, I can't do it without showing you, but you know, it's like a bit of a process to get it down. Like yeah. Yeah, so there's a couple strategies they use. There's that, yeah, using gravity. They'll just, yeah, uh, kind of, yep. Yeah, like a tequila <laughs> shot. Just Chase it with some lime. Yeah. <laughs> um, they can also do like a pumping motion of their esophagus to almost like suck water yeah. up, yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. Um, I saw this cool fact where seabirds can drink salt water, and that's because they have special glands in their nostrils that will Isn't eliminate that so cool? salt. Yeah. yeah. They just, I know, I think that's anything. That's what, what are seabirds called again? Pelagic creatures. Pelagic <laughs> creatures. Uh, I don't know why I like that word so much. Um, and I was talking about the cloaca. The cloaca, um, so they poop out of it and they pee out of it. The way that birds pee is they um, excrete uric acid. That's when a bird shits on your car and there's the black and the white, the black's the poop, and then the white is the uric acid. They're able, they, this is really advantageous to them because the uric acid is super concentrated. Um, it's, and they're able to concentrate it like that because it's less toxic than urea, which is how we excrete our nitrogen. And we have to dilute it super down. And uh, that's why, you know, we pee as water and everything instead of <laughs> white solid stuff. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, also, I talked about depending on the diet, yeah. they'll be the intestines will be a little different. There's something called the cica in intestines of birds that uh, digest plant material. Mm -hmm. um, parrots also apparently they'll eat clay to help digest fruits and seeds that um, have some toxins in them mm -hmm. to kind of like dilute it out. That's interesting. Yeah. The cica is in the lower intestine. Is that right? So. Well, in a bird, I don't know. Yeah, so the cecum, at least oh. in humans, it's right where the small bowel and the large intestine hit each other. And it's kind of like a pouch. It's where your appendix hangs off of. That's right. So, yeah, I don't know if the cica, it kind of made it sound like they're, they're plural, like there's multiple cica. Huh. I don't know. Yeah. Avian <laughs> biologists, right in, if anyone's <laughs> even listening to this podcast. <laughs> All right, what else about birds do you want to know? So we talked digestion. Do you, let's see, are we talking about um, skeletal? Are we talking about muscle? 
Yeah, let's talk about the skeletons and the muscles. So, can you name off that fact about the skeletons you said earlier? I think that... Sounding so so determined here, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that bird, uh, birds in flight, that less than, I think, 5% of their weight is, is skeleton, which is, like, really surprising because I think for humans, that's a lot more of our body weight in our skeleton system. Everyone knows they're... they're form these super lightweight skeletons um, that enable them to fly. Um, a little bit brittle, but also strong somehow. You know, it's like really, an, it's really an amazing um, part of them. And that was my fact. So run with oh, it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and if you're a big boned human, does your skeleton weigh more? Mm, Is that... I don't know. <laughs> Johnny. I'm not fat. I'm big. Um, so you talked about how they're light but also strong. So that's because uh, they're uh, they have these pneumatized bones, meaning that there's uh, areas for air within their bones. Um, and but they have struts and trusses inside their bones for strength. Well, Almost no. yeah, like any architect out there yeah. can. You you can probably learn a little bit from uh, some bird bones. Yeah. Todd, if you're listening, my one architect friend. Okay. Also, the uh, bones of birds, too, have room in them for air sacs for uh, bird respiratory, which I'll go into the respiration of birds, which is super freaking cool. Super freaking cool. Uh, it, obviously, if you're like a ground bird, like a uh, ostrich or emu, or you're a diving bird, like a penguin, you'll have less pneumatized bones. Penguins, loons, and puffins actually don't have any um, pneumatization of their bones. They're just solid. Mm -hmm. And bird, I'll, I'll say, I'll talk way more about bird skeletons and details. There's a lot of cool stuff. But something I wanted to touch on is something called the um, pygo style of birds. It's kind of like their tailbone almost. Tail it's, feather? Well, Shake that tail. <laughs> The tail feathers attached to it. So it's kind of like a little raised area at the end of their body. It's these fused um, bones that support the tail feathers and rectrices. Uh, the rectrices are like those stiff uh, feathers that like woodpeckers use to uh, hold on to the trees and stuff. It, For some reason throughout history, uh, people have seen a nose in this all the time when they look at that bone, and they seem to always nickname it off of uh, people in power they don't like. So nicknames for it is stuff like Bishop's Nose, Pope's Nose, Sultan's Nose. <laughs> yeah, I guess whoever's in power, they just want to name the bird butt after it. <laughs> so that's a cool little thing about the bird skeleton there. Uh, and then as far as bird muscle goes, by far the largest muscles on the bird are the pectoralis muscles because they're flying. I wonder, probably I think in a bird like an ostrich or an emu, maybe like more of their like quadricep muscles are, are even bigger than their pectoralis muscles. Yeah, I imagine so. I think yeah. they have pretty limited yeah. musculature up top. I mean, they still will like spread their wings and kind yeah. of flap them and stuff. But yeah, but I would think... Because they can run pretty dang fast. They so. really can. Yeah, and I'm sure like the muscle type changes because if you have like those long distance migratory birds, right, you have the different types of muscles, which again, migration is a different conversation. Yeah. But And I would assume like slow twitch versus fast twitch muscles, I'd assume the birds that just hang around in one area and don't migrate probably have more fast twitch muscles and then migrating, mig migrating. migrating <laughs> birds probably have more slow twitch muscles. Yeah, to, muscles. yeah. and yeah. a bird probably like an albatross would definitely have almost all slow twitch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think there are just under 200 muscles on these some of these tiny birds that you look at and, and don't think they could hold that many. And that most of their muscular, like their muscles attach in this one like focal point in their chest, which makes sense with most of these muscles being for flight. Whereas with humans, you know, we're mostly attaching to our our spine. Yeah. And I think it's just really fascinating with birds. It's whatever this bone's called. I'm, I'm the sternum? It's like That's where you're kinda of pointing it's to. It's basically like their I don't I don't know. Come back with what it's called, but basically yeah, How am like I gonna their, come back with that? We'll we'll be right I'll back. Imitate your voice and edit it. <laughs> Make me sound smart, Johnny. <laughs> you do sound smart. No, oh but it's just gosh. amazing that where they attach is yeah, no, very you're different fine. than you're like fine. our yeah. one our spine. So um, yeah, and I think they have fused scapulas, too, to, like, yeah. help with flight also. I think that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
We obviously did our research over here. Professional. <laughs> That's the magic of editing. <laughs> um, so that that large pectoralis major it makes up fifteen to twenty five percent of their weight, which is That's crazy. Wild. And then their pec minor makes up another fifteen percent. And this got me thinking: How much do you think a bird could bench press? <laughs> like if it was the size of a human, like a lot. But leg press would be a little challenging. Unless it was an ostrich. Unless it was an ostrich. <laughs> different. Yeah. How much can an ostrich leg press? <laughs> I think that's all I got on muscles for for now. So okay, so we have cardio respiratory and we have temp regulation. Which one do you want? Let's get into temp regulation. Okay. Before, because I think we should end with. I think everyone's on the edge of their seat for respiration. So. I I know I they're with bated breath are yes. hearing about <laughs> respiration. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, so uh, birds are warm blooded, if you didn't know, <laughs> um, and they usually keep their body temperatures uh, uh, higher than most mammals do. They usually run around 104 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, they can do a lot of things that we do to stay warm. They can shiver. They shiver those big old pectoralis muscles. Shiver those muscles. Yes. Yeah, so if you ever see those guys doing that, like where they flexing their pecs. Yeah, where they like make their pecs dance or whatever. Like birds do that to time. stay warm. <laughs> they can also kind of change their uh, blood flow. They can uh, a really. I mean, you'll see like birds, like ducks or something. They're swimming in super cold water, and you're like, "What? How do their feet not freeze off?" Or like a bird perched on a freezing cold branch or something. Yeah. And it's because they'll shunt their blood flow. They'll kind of cut off a lot of the blood going to their their feet. Basically, well, what they do is the warm blood coming in will pass right by the uh, blood coming up from their feet, and it will exchange all the heat over to that blood going up to their body hmm. so the warm so the warmth i mean blood will still go down to their feet carrying oxygen so that the tissue doesn't die but that heat will be kind of maintained to the core of their body that is so cool i'm glad you said that i was going to ask you what that looks like yeah it's super cool they also have several layers of feathers which help them maximize with their um with their heat mm-hmm and those feathers are their outer ones are their contour uh, feathers uh, that's the ones on like their wings and tail um, kind of the covering their body they also have these um, rictal bristles kind of around their mouth which are kind of used for feeling mm-hmm. uh, when they eat or like like I said their beaks basically like their hands yeah, so um, uh, then they have their downy feathers which are their insulation that's the kind of feathers we like to stuff in pillows <laughs> They also have these feathers called the phyloplumas, which are uh, kind of almost more hair-like. And we think these are kind of kind of very primitive feathers, almost like what kind of the first dinosaurs had and yeah. stuff. Do they serve a purpose that you know? Or are they just... Yeah, so in some birds, um, they kind of use them like whiskers. Mm-hmm. Um, they... Uh, form the crest on cormorants mm-hmm. um, and we think that they're like mu- they're almost like um, the way our muscle spindles and our muscles kind of tell us how our muscles are stretching and everything like that mm-hmm. we think that the phyloplumas help the birds monitor their feather positions because if you've ever seen a bird their feathers are usually almost all perfect and if one goes out of place they'll immediately fix it yeah so we think these phyloplumas are kind of like uh you know, sensation Little for them. Kind of yeah, to kind of tell them, oh, my feather's out of place. I need to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. Also, with their temperature regulation, you'll see birds puff themselves up to increase their the surface area of their feathers when it's cold. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll look like these really fat, chunky birds in the winter. Yeah. Um, and then they'll also kind of sit on their legs to kind of contain it a little more. They'll tuck their heads. Um, especially when they sleep to kind of conserve um, energy. Um, do, do, do. And speaking of sleeping, what about torpor? Do you know about like, Yes, torpor. So we talk about this on our nice tits episode because, ah. yeah, because chickadees will do this. So, yeah, torpor is where they'll basically kind of hibernate overnight. They'll lower their body temperature down to like 86 that, degrees. Yeah, bring the it's heart nuts. rate down. Yeah. Incredible. Um, I have, and everyone should find this on YouTube, there's a video of a little hummingbird in torpor snoring and it is like the most high-pitched and adorable snore you've ever heard in your life so you should probably just look up hummingbird and torpor and listen to it because it will bring you joy that is awesome a cool little fact here so uh bar-headed geese 
they uh, make an incredible migration. They will fly up to 8,000 feet, and they'll fly actually over Mount Everest, over the Himalaya Mountains. I don't think they fly directly over Mount Everest, but they'll fly over the Himalayas. Look down at all the humans. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, some dudes waiting in line for three hours to be passing all the dead bodies to finally get to the top of Everest, and then he just sees a bar-headed goose fly right overhead. Effortless. Um, we're kind of, you know, it's kind of wondering, like, how the hell can they can they do this? Because um, it's so much work to be able to, I mean, the air center up there, so they have to obviously, like, work harder to stay aloft in the air. And something cool is that when they're up high like that, flying actually really increases the heat loss in birds. Right. So they cool down a lot when they're flying. And this is actually good for the bar-headed geese up there because cold blood actually has more... Uh, oxygen carrying capacity. Yeah. Yeah. That's why cold water also will be like super rich in oxygen. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the huge things with uh, climate change too. The rising uh, ocean temperatures, there's less oxygen in there. Yeah. We were just talking about how uh, birds stay warm, but how do they cool down? Because birds are actually really bad at tolerating high temperatures mm-hmm. um, above 46 degrees Celsius, which don't ask me what that is in Fahrenheit. <laughs> It's actually fatal for uh, a lot of birds. Yeah. Um, and so they will um, increase heat loss from several ways. We just talked about flying. Um, they'll pant, kind of like dogs. Mm-hmm. Look like this. I wish we had like a video feed <laughs> because honestly here. so much of cat is physical humor. <laughs> they'll flutter their wings. They will also um, expose bare skin. So they have something called an um, epterolae. Epterolae. I'm going to go with that. Sounds right. Um, on the back of their neck, which is kind of like a bare skin area mm-hmm. that they can uh, more easily lose heat out of. Right at the base of their neck, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can also kind of vibrate the muscles in their throat to more effectively pant. Mm-hmm. And um, also talking about that um, epterolae on the back of their neck, they also have something called a brood patch that they develop. You've probably seen with penguins, like in March of the Penguins, they expose that little area of bare skin on their tummy and put it on the egg and that's a highly efficient way to transfer heat interesting so yeah thought that was kind of cool yeah and actually when they do that when they're warming their eggs like that it triggers prolactin release prolactin is a chemical in humans that uh, causes us to secrete milk um i'm not sure exactly what it does in i think it's used for bonding in uh in the birds so when they're warming their egg like that they kind of bond with it too and get that caring mentality uh we'll talk about more about that when we do a episode about um bird emotion yeah so anything else about heat uh temperature regulation and stuff like that that you found cool or that i missed or no i think i think that's great it's good to talk about how they cool off um how they get warm i think that's something we see a lot just walking around you know Especially, I feel like, on the Chesapeake Bay with, with these drastic changes in water temperature. I mean, sometimes you see cormorants doing interesting things or, like, I've never seen a bird do that. So, now we know. Yeah. Let's get to the heart and lungs. Edge of my seat. And finish this up. Catherine has a harrowing drive to do. I have to say, <laughs> we're recording from Elkins, West Virginia, where I live right now. And Catherine made the journey from Cheat Mountain the snowshoe ski resort out here little elkins to visit and she's driving back and it's snowing outside the I weather think... outside is dreadful <laughs> but we would just driving see... in it in the i don't know i can't in the nightfall yeah in the nightfall. <laughs> but we did have an epic hike today with the best of company yeah up at bickle's knob yep um so okay so lungs and heart lungs and heart so I'll start with heart because the lungs are a little bit of a longer talk and they're super cool. But anyway, in general, birds have a larger heart for their body size than mammals do. Um, this all kind of goes into flight. They usually have a higher heart rate than mammals do. The average is around 150 to 350 beats per minute. Hummingbirds in flight go up to 1,200 beats per minute. So cool. Which is incredible. They tend to have uh, more capillaries in their muscles than mammals do their capillaries are closer to mitochondria for better energy metabolism i think that might be all i have about hearts all right so lungs 
So let me walk you through how a bird breathes. So air goes in the nostrils, down the trachea, to the bronchi. Where do you think it goes next? Mm, into one of their chambers of lungs. Yes. Uh, you're, but which I thought chamber? you were going to say lungs. But no, yes, you're right. It goes to one of their post it goes to the posterior air sac. Oh. Then wow. the bird exhales. And when it exhales, air moves from the posterior air sac into the lungs. And there in the lungs, oxygen is exchanged for carbon dioxide. Then the bird inhales again, and air moves from the lungs into anterior air sacs. And then it exhales again. <laughs> it exhales. And the air goes out the beak. Let's walk it through one more time because that's a lot to think about, right? Yeah. We're, we have such simple things. So, yeah. So think of this like a conveyor belt because whereas we as humans, we breathe in and we breathe out. The air goes along the same track both ways. And one of the main disadvantages of this is when we breathe in, our pure air that we're breathing in is mixing with air that has already diffused uh, and filled up with carbon dioxide in our lungs. Mm -hmm. So we're not getting the full benefit of that air we're breathing in. We're kind of like uh, cutting it, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. It's like um, <laughs> Coke with baking powder. Okay, you went there, <laughs> dirty bird. <laughs> but the birds, they're getting the pure shit. Yeah. They're getting that pure Colombian that air. <laughs> As I'm, we call it. I'm keeping with this metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> the purest. So it comes in and it's held in this like little holding tank. Yes. As pure as can be. Yes. So they inhale. It's in the in the posterior holding tank, and then they exhale, pushes it into the lungs. The diffusion happens. Yeah, purest Woo! pure. Give me that pure oxygen. Yeah, that Everest oxygen. And then inhale again. So they're pulling more air into their nostrils to replenish that posterior exactly. air sac. Yeah. And then they exhale into the lungs. It's hard when you have... It really is. It's such a... Columbia pure... <laughs> air. This air. <laughs> have you ever been to... Do you remember those oxygen bars? Yeah. Do you remember those? That's so weird. Yeah, that was the weirdest thing ever. I remember... human invention. I remember my friend Chris, who was actually on this podcast for our first episode, Big Packers... He went to an oxygen bar and he, you know, like a couple of us did it and we're all just like, uh, what, this is so stupid. But he's like acting like he's like drunk. He's like, oh man, like that Puro 2, like it's got me. Like I'm seeing rings around everything or something. We're like, dude, like you're just faking it. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah. Like the guy, yeah, and the guy behind the counter, of course, is just like, oh, yes, it's best oxygen ever. Like, this <laughs> I'm is sure what... they pulled him aside for a testimony. Yeah. Like... <laughs> this is what astronauts breathe, man. <laughs> Something stupid like that. <laughs> anyway, of course, this is in Virginia Beach. Um, <laughs> only in Virginia Beach. But anyway, um, okay, so they inhale. Air in the nostrils. Into that posterior air sac. They exhale. It pushes it into the lungs. That exchange happens. Then they inhale again to bring more air in through their nostrils. And that pushes the air out of their lungs and into the anterior air sacs. And then when they exhale again, they are breathing out their beak, this anterior air sac stuff. And then when they're exhaling also, that air is moving from the posterior air sac into their lungs. So there's like a constant conveyor belt yeah. going on. Every time they, like, it's like each breath that they're, like when they're inhaling and exhaling, it's like they're getting movement of air through their body and yeah. oxygenating almost like constantly yeah um and those posterior and anterior air sacs room is made for them within their bones right. which is really cool which is one of the reasons why they're so light yeah yeah and also with their lungs it's kind of more like a bellow system mm -hmm. um their lungs are really more rigid um than ours are as mammals we have like pretty pretty Elastic. flexible yeah, yeah yeah they don't have a diaphragm like we do so mostly when we breathe we rely on using our diaphragm to kind of create negative pressure that pulls the air in yeah. so what what seems like more work inhalation or exhalation inhalation yeah so we work by inhaling and contracting our diaphragm down to create negative pressure and pull air into our lungs. It's like a we're like a vacuum, whereas birds are like bellows. Yeah. Um, and so birds actually they um, relax to inhale, and then mm. they they contract their intercostal muscles and their abdominal muscles 
to kind of force the air out. Yeah. Which is which is pretty cool. It's like the exact opposite about what we do. And you um, do all of that while flying. It just blows my mind. Yeah. But, I mean, they're burning. Gosh, got to think about how many calories they burn every minute. I would love to think about that, but let's talk another podcast. Yeah, man. That's on like let's do eating. the let's create the bird workout program. Yeah. <laughs> Get that bird bod. Bird bod. <laughs> I'll briefly talk about the way the blood flow works because it's probably really hard to illustrate in a podcast. But they have this thing called cross current blood flow in their lungs. Basically, their um, pulmonary vein and their pulmonary artery they run opposite to each other. Um, the pulmonary vein is what is bringing oxygenated blood to the heart to get pumped to the rest of the body. The pulmonary artery is bringing blood, deoxygenated blood, from the heart to the lungs. The air, um, the areas of air run right through it. So birds don't have alveoli like us. Alveoli are like the little sacs, little grape-like sacs in us where the exchange of oxygen occurs. Um, instead, they have these like honeycomb structures called parabronchi, and within them are these things called atria, and uh, that's where the air exchange occurs. So within these atria, we have the pulmonary vein, pulmonary artery running opposite to each other, a little tunnel of air running in between, and they kind of have these successive branches coming off from both the pulmonary artery and pulmonary vein. So as the blood's moving, it's constantly getting more and more oxygen in and more and more carbon dioxide out as it moves along. So it's kind of increasing the amount. Uh, But when you do all the math, I guess, I guess this is what biologists do in their spare time. It, It ends up kind of, they have the same O2 levels that that mammals end up in in their just in a their blood. Mechanism. Yeah, just a different mechanism. It's not like their you know oxygen concentration is like crazy higher than than what mammals is in their blood. Yeah. Um. What else did I want to say about the lungs? I guess the only other thing I'll say about their kind of um, oh actually another cool thing about their lungs. So there's something called dead space. So dead space is when you're breathing, it's the area that air moves where no uh, oxygen exchange is occurring. Mm -hmm. So in humans, like your throat, your bronchi, basically everything before you get to your alveoli is dead space. So this is kind of a problem for birds because they have these super long necks, you know. Well, some birds do like swans and cranes and stuff. So that's like a ton of dead space that they have. And even birds like... Uh, I saw the whooper swan and the whooping crane. A lot, a lot of whooping birds out whooping there. <laughs> uh, they have coiled trachea, and we don't really understand why they wow. have that. I, maybe it's part of the whooping. I don't know. It might be, yeah. but it really increases the amount of dead space they have, and this is kind of like disadvantage as far as respiration goes. Yes, interesting. Speaking of whooping, birds have uh, the structure that humans use to make sound is called the larynx. Uh, that's what we, we have muscles that kind of change their length and their direction to, uh, change the way air passes through them and create different pitches and, uh, change the sound that we make. Birds have something called a syrinx and because they have that bellows like breathing pattern, they can produce more than one sound at a time out of their syrinx. And they can also, some birds can continuously sing without stopping because they're the way that they're breathing like that conveyor belt style they can just keep keep singing keep pre- it's like cool. yeah and yeah i think i saw one bird straight sing for like 12 hours or something like that like it's like if we just went out and screamed for like that's 12 amazing. hours straight yeah yeah all right that's all my bird physiology facts very Definitely skimming the surface. We could go on and on. We could go on and on. Skimming the surface like a pelagic bird. Like a pelagic bird, the skimmer, yeah. Any final thoughts there, Kat? No, I think that this is just opening up so many ideas of of things to talk about in the future, so I can't wait to hear what you talk about next time. Thanks, yeah. And yeah, it's so nice to have you. Thank you for agreeing to sitting down. I know you need to get on the road. I don't want you to freaking <laughs> crash in the middle of freaking nowhere West Virginia. I have my binoculars, so... <laughs> you have your binoculars. I'll just climb to the top of a mountain and find find help. I picture you like Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> with your binoculars fighting like a grizzly bear or something. Easy. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining thank me, Thank you Kat. for having me. I really appreciate it. I look forward to the future of Dirty Bird. <laughs> Cut that out. Don't put that in there. <laughs> Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John Janusik, with our rotating panel of co-hosts. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our outro music is New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. And our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. Follow them on Instagram and check them out wherever you get your music. Graphic design by my beautiful fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and rate Dirty Bird Podcast. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice memo of your birding experience to have it read on the show. Until next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs>